0: Chapter Twenty of History of the Norwegian People, Volume One by Knut This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty: Religion and Literature. Wherever the Vikings settled, they established a well-developed social organization, infused a new vigor into the peoples with whom they came in contact, and imparted to them ideas which germinated into new cultural growth. Along practical lines, they were often much farther advanced than the nations which were subjected to, to their attacks. This was especially manifest in Ireland, where the people at the time of the Viking inroads yet lived under a tribal organization amid most primitive economic and social conditions. Not only did they lack a well-organized army, ships, commerce, cities, roads, and bridges, but they paid little attention to agriculture, living for the most part on their herds and flocks, with which they moved from place to place. They were, as a rule, cruel and sensual. Their warfare was savage, the position of women was low and degrading, their houses were usually miserable huts. Yet this people possessed a remarkable intellectual culture, and became in this field the teachers and benefactors of their enemies, the Norsemen. They had been Christians for many centuries before the Vikings began their conquests. Their missionaries were laboring, not only in Scotland and England, but had penetrated to the remote forest regions of Germany and France, to Switzerland and northern Italy, even in the solitudes of the Faroe Islands in Iceland, pious Irish monks had erected their hermitages. They had great scholars who diligently studied Greek and Latin authors, and profound philosophers like John Scotus erigena During the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries, the Irish schools became celebrated all over Europe. Not only Greek and Latin, but philosophy, astronomy, mathematics, and geography were studied. The Irish cloister schools became the refuge of those who loved intellectual culture in the Dark Ages, and scholars from many countries flocked to them. Alcuin, the great scholar at the court of Charles the Great, corresponded with one of the professors of the Irish school at Clonmacnois, whom he calls his dear master and teacher. Also, in their own native tongue, they produced a rich culture, both in prose and poetry. Heroic tradition flourished, sagas were written to commemorate the deeds of great chieftains, or to preserve the knowledge of the clan and of family relationships, and songs were composed by scalds in honor of their kings. They sang, too, of love and of the beauty of nature, with a sweet tenderness strange in those days when such poetry was almost unknown. But both their poetry and their prose suffered from an overflow of fancy and feeling, uncontrolled by artistic taste. The wildest exaggerations abound. The characters are grotesque, superhuman, and indistinctly drawn. There is an obscurity and lack of form which stands in the sharpest contrast to the brief lucid style and psychological character painting in the Norse sagas that the religious and literary life so highly developed among the Irish, their love of nature, their lyric sentimentality, and sympathetic and emotional character made a deep impression on the stern Norsemen is certain. They, who came to conquer, were in turn conquered by this new and gentle influence. Long before they were converted to Christianity, their lives and views were deeply affected by ideas acquired in the Christian countries which they visited, and especially through their sojourn in Ireland. It was largely due to this new stimulus that Norse skaldic poetry and the saga literature began to flourish in the Viking period, and that Norse mythology assumes at this time a distinctly new form in which we find embedded in the strata of pagan thought many unmistakable fragments of Christian ideas, as the conceptions of creation, of righteousness, of good and evil, as well as views of the life hereafter, which can have their origin only in the realm of Christian faith and morality. The skaldic poetry falls into two general groups the skaldic songs, so-called because they are written by skalds whose names and careers are known, and a body of old songs by unknown authors, called the Elder Edda, or Norin Forkvedi. The skalds were usually connected with a king's herd or court, and produced songs to extol the person and achievements of their patrons, on whose munificence they lived. These songs, which contain much valuable information regarding persons and events of early Norwegian history, are usually composed in a most intricate verse form, the drottkvæt, which abounds in word transpositions, allusions, and metaphoric expressions, kenengar, which offer many difficulties to the modern reader. This verse seems to have been invented by Braga Boddason, Braga the Old, who lived in the first part of the ninth century and is the first Norwegian skald to whom we have any record. There were also skalds who did not stay at the courts and who composed songs on more varied subjects. Egil Skallagrimsson, Grimson, one of the great masters in skaldic song, and Ulv Uggason, the author of the Hudsdrapa, may be mentioned. Egil is well known from his songs Hufrslassen and Arnbjörnsdrapa, but especially for his great poem Sonnatorek, in which he laments the loss of his sons. Noteworthy are also Cormac's Mansongsvisser, love songs to the beautiful Steingerd. Many of the saga writers were also skalds, notably Snora Sturluson and Sturla Thordsson. Snora, the author of the Heimskringla, has also written The Younger Edda, a most important work intended as a book of instruction for young Skalds. The work has preserved the names of a great number of Skalds, together with fragments of their songs, and furnishes a key to the many difficulties in Skaldic poetry. It gives a review of mythology, Gilfagining, which a Skald must necessarily know. It explains the poetical and metaphorical expressions, Chaiti, used in Skaldic poetry, and a poem written to King Hagen Haakonsson and Schule Jarl illustrates all the verse forms used by the Skalds. The Eldoretta consists of two series of songs, the mythological and the heroic, written by Skalds whose names are not known. Besides the poems about Helge Hudingsbane and Helge Jorvardsson, the heroic songs deal with the great Nibelungen tradition, and constitute the first literary embodiment known of this great Germanic epic. The Edic poems have preserved a much older form of this tradition than that found in the Nibelungenlied. In the mythological poems we find clearly set forth in verse of classic simplicity and beauty the Norsemen's ideas of creation, the lives and character of their gods, the destruction of the world, and of man's destiny after death. In the Håvamal, we find outlined also their great moral conceptions, and their view of life in general. The grandest of all these old songs is the Volospa, the prophecy of the Volva, this Volva can be none other than Erd, Old Norse Ørðr, one of the three Norns, or goddesses of fate, Ørðr, Verdandi, and Skuld. The gods are assembled in council at the well of Erd. Odin calls the Volva from the grave, and the great Sibyl comes forth to reveal to the god of wisdom what even he does not know. The mysteries of creation, the destruction of the gods, the end of the world, and the happy existence in the life to come. She commands silent attention and tells the assembled gods that in the beginning there was neither sand nor sea, nor cool billows. The earth did not exist, nor the heavens above. There was a yawning abyss, but nowhere grass before the sons of Burr lifted up the dry land, they who created the beautiful earth. The sun shone from the south on the stones of the hall, and the earth was covered with green herbs. The sun, the moon, and the stars did not know their proper courses, but the mighty gods held counsel, and gave them their right orbits dividing time into night, morning, midday, and evening. The Gylfaginning presents a more complete account of creation, giving in fuller detail a myth which is outlined also in the Wofthrudensmal. Here we learn that in the beginning there were two regions, one of fire and heat, called Muspelheim, ruled over by Surt, who watches the borders of his realm with a glowing sword. When the end of the world comes, he will conquer the gods and destroy the earth with fire. The other was a cold region, Niflheim, Old Norse Niflheimr, from which twelve rivers issue, called a Livagar. Between these two regions is the great abyss Genungagap. The masses of ice which had accumulated on the northern side of this abyss finally caught the spark of life from the heat issuing from Muspelheim, and a great man-shaped being, Ymir, Old Norse Imer, was produced, from whom the Jotuns descended. The gods killed Ymir. And from his body they created the earth, from his blood the ocean, from his bones the mountains, and from his skull the heavens. From sparks from Mispelheim they made the sun, moon, and the stars, and placed them on the heavens. Again the gods assembled in council, says the Volva, and created the dwarves in the earth. From two trees, ash and elm, they created man and woman. Odin gave them the spirit, Herner gave them reason, and Loder color and warmth of life. The gods were amusing themselves at the gaming tables, and there was no lack of gold until the three powerful maidens came from Jotunheim. These maidens are the three Norns or goddesses of fate already mentioned. Strife had not yet begun. The gods were happy in this golden age, which lasted until the fates appeared to determine the destiny of gods and men. But the elements of discord had entered the world. Gold, woman, and witchcraft. The goddess Gulveig, who seems to be a personification of all three, was killed in Odin's hall. And this caused the first war that between the Aesir and the Vanir, the two tribes of gods who now contend for supremacy. Odin threw his spear into the throng. This was the first combat in the world. A peace was finally concluded, according to which the two tribes were united on equal terms. The personification of evil itself is Loki and his children with the giantess Angerboda, Old Norse Angerboda. The three monsters, Hel, goddess of the underworld, the wolf Fenre old norse fenrir who at the end of the world will kill odin and the midgardsormr or jörmungand the world serpent a personification of the ocean encircling the earth the world in which there is now continual strife is represented under the symbol of a giant ash tree the yggdrasil whose top reaches into the heavens whose branches fill the world and whose three roots extend into the three important spheres of existence outside the world of man one root is where the aesir dwell under this root is the well of Erd, where the gods assemble in council. Another root reaches to the home of the Jotuns, or Rimthusar, Old Norse Hrimthursar, under which is the well of Mimir, the mountain of wisdom. The third root is in Niflheim, and under it is the terrible well Vergelme, by which is found the snake Nidhagr, which together with many others continuously gnaws at the roots of the world tree, and seeks to destroy it. Nidhagr, is the symbol of the destructive forces operating in the world. An ash tree I know, Yggdrasil called. Yggdrasil called. A tall tree sprinkled with water. From it comes the dew that falls in the valleys. Evergreen it stands by the fountain of Urd. Much do they know, the three maidens, who come from the hall which stands by the tree. One is Urd, the other Verdande. Shul is the third. Laws they make they determine life and the fate of men. The Norns are not only in the world, but they are the real rulers of it. Even the gods must submit to their decrees. They rule over life and death and man's destiny. No one can escape the calamities which they have preordained. But they have not the absolute power attributed to the fates in Greek and Roman mythology. They are also subject to an ultimate fate. They disappear at Ragnarok, Old Norse ragnarökr Together with this present world, Again the gods assembled, says the Völva, to consider how evil had come into the world. Odin, who is interrogating her, tries to conceal his identity, but she recognizes him and tells him the great secrets of his life. In Norse mythology, Odin is the chief divinity and the father of many of the other gods, but it is evident that in earlier periods other gods have held the highest position. Ti, Old Norse Tyr, the god of war, Anglo-Saxon Theus, Old High German too seems to be the same divinity as the Greek Zeus, and has, no doubt, at one time been the principal god. Thor, the god of thunder and lightning, must also have ranked higher than Odin, but in Norse mythology he has become Odin's son. He is constantly fighting the wicked jotuns, at whom he hurls his hammer Mjolnir, the thunderbolt. He is the farmer's special protector and benefactor. He shields them against the hostile forces of nature, and furthers husbandry in all peaceful pursuits. In Norway, he was worshipped more extensively than any other god. Odin, Anglo-Saxon Wodan, Old High German Wotan, German Wotan, seems originally to have been a storm god, but in later periods he becomes so prominent that he pushes the older divinities from their throne. Odin is an embodiment of the spirit of the Viking Age. Even in appearance he is a chieftain, tall, one-eyed, grey-bearded, attired in a blue mantle, carrying a shield and the spear Gungnir, Old Norse Gungnir. Which never misses its mark. His life is rich in all sorts of adventures. He loves war and is generally found in the midst of the battle. He is also the god of wisdom, and his desire for knowledge is almost a passion. His two ravens, Hugin and Munin, bring him daily notice of everything that happens in the world. No sacrifice is too great if thereby he can gain more knowledge. How did he lose his eye? It is a great secret, but the Volva reveals it. He drank once from the well of Mimir. The fountain of wisdom, and had to give one of his eyes as a forfeit. Odin is the personification of the heavens; his one eye is the sun; the other, which Mimir took, is the sun's reflection in the water. He also discovered the runes, but only by making another great sacrifice. The Hávamál gives the following account of it: I know that I hung on the windy tree nine nights together, wounded by a spear, sacrificed to Odin, myself to myself, on the tree which no one knows from what root it springs. Neither with food nor with drink was I refreshed. I looked carefully down and raised up the runes. Crying, I raised them up, and fell then down. Even this great pain Odin is willing to undergo to discover the runes, for through him he gains occult knowledge, and becomes the god of sorcery, the wisest and most powerful of all the gods. From his throne Lidskalf, Old Norse Lidskalf, he overlooks the whole world. He is always thoughtful and meditates on great problems, Evil and good are equally interesting to him, for both reveal some secret of life. He contemplates the mystery of existence and the approaching end of things. He is never glad because he knows too much. In Osgard, Old Norse Asgardr, the gods build a beautiful hall, Gladsheim, for the gods, and another, Fingolv, Old Norse Fingolf, for the goddesses, but greater than any of these was Odin's own hall, Valhall, Old Norse Valhall. To this hall the Valkyries bring the dead warriors who fall on the field of battle, and they are feasted and entertained by Odin himself. All who die a natural death are excluded. The heroes find their pastime in fighting, and many fall every day, but they rise again unharmed and return to feast in Valhall as the best of friends. Another divinity who is in the Viking period must have undergone a great change, and who seems to reflect the new spirit of that age is Baldur. The opinions of scholars with regards to the Baldur myth are hopelessly at variance. A. Ulrich thinks that Baldur is an old sun god, that his death signifies the victory of darkness over light, while H. Schick thinks that he was not a real god till shortly before the advent of Christianity. According to Saxo Grammaticus, he was a young and impetuous warrior who waged many combats with his rival Hothar, by whom he is finally slain. He is a son of Odin but lives on the earth, Sophus Bugge considers this to be the older form of the myth. In the Voluspa and the Gilfagining, he is pictured as the gentle god of innocence and righteousness, so bright that a light of glory surrounds him. He dwells in the hall Breidoblik, the far shining hall, where nothing impure is found. He is wise, kind, and eloquent, and so just that his decrees cannot be altered. His wife is Odin's granddaughter, the faithful Nonna. His son is Forshete, the god of justice and reconciliation. While Baldr lives, Eel can gain no real control in the world, but bad dreams begin to trouble him, and as this portends some great misfortune to the Aesir, Odin saddles his eight-legged horse Sleipnir, Old Norse Sleipnir, and rides to Niflheim to learn what evil is thus foreboded. He calls the Volva from her grave, and asks her for whose reception they are making preparations in Hell's kingdom, but she answers that it is for Baldr, who will soon die. This news causes great consternation among the Aesir, and they assemble in council to discuss the matter frigg balder's mother requires everything in the world to take an oath not to harm her son the gods now feel secure and in their joy that the danger is averted they amuse themselves by throwing all sorts of things at balder to show that nothing will hurt him but loki comes disguised to the enemy and learns from frigg that there is a tiny plant the mistletoe, which she has not required to take the oath because it seemed too small he pulls up the plant brings it to the assembly and asks the blind god Höd, Hödr, to throw it at Baldr. Höd does so, the plant pierces him through, and he falls dead. The greatest misfortune has happened. Nanna's heart breaks of sorrow, and she is buried together with her husband, who is received by Hel in her kingdom. But there is a hope even in this great calamity. While Baldr lies on the bier, Odin whispers something in his ear. This episode is mentioned in the Vafthrudnismal, where Odin asks the wise Vafthrudne, what did Odin whisper in his son's ear before he was laid on the funeral pyre? This is a riddle which even vafthrudne cannot solve. He answers, No one knows what, in the beginning of time, thou didst whisper in thy son's ear. No one knows. But it was, no doubt, a promise that he should not remain forever in Hell's realm, but that he should return when the world of strife had passed away, and the new life of peace and righteousness had begun. In Norse mythology, as elsewhere in old religious systems, the ideas of the life hereafter are often vague, even contradictory. Mythology is a growth, a product of long periods of a people's intellectual development, in which old ideas have constantly been mixed with new conceptions. It represents a march of the human mind forward to new light, rather than a once-for-all perfected system. The Hell myth is an illustration. Hell, the name both of the goddess and of the realm over which she rules, is sometimes thought of as the home of all the departed, where even Balder goes after death. Hence the Norwegian expression, at slaw i hel, i.e. to kill, to deprive one of life so that he goes to hell. But hell is also thought of as the place for the wicked. Hell, the goddess, is white on one side and black on the other, and her hall is described as a frightful place. We have seen that from the earliest times the Norsemen believed in a life after death, which is shown by many burial customs. In course of time they began to construct large burial chambers where all the members of the family should be interred together. Professor H. Schuch thinks that these graves first endangered the idea of the lower world. He says, A primitive people does not think of the death as annihilation, but rather as an entrance into new life. Only by premising such a belief can a number of antique burial customs be explained. At first the dead person lived in this new life in the grave itself, and these large family graves gave origin to the idea of the realm of the dead. According to the oldest belief, then, all the dead came to this realm where hell ruled. But it was a shadowy, joyless existence, and the feeling that heroes and good people deserve something better give rise to new creations, to Valhall, Odin's Hall, Folkvang, and Sesrumne, Sesrymnir, where Freya entertains one half of all the fallen heroes. Fingolf, Vingolf, where all heroes are entertained by the goddesses, and to the idea that all women who die unmarried go to the goddess Gefjun. Hell and her kingdom fell into disfavor, and were painted in ever-darker colors, Loki did not escape punishment. He was tied by the Aesir in a rocky cavern where poisonous adders drop venom into his face, and there he will have to lie till Ragnarok, or the end of the world. But his faithful wife Sigyn stands always by him and gathers the dripping venom in a cup. Only when she empties the cup does it drop into Loki's face, and then he writhes in pain so that the earth quakes. Hod, the slayer of Baldur, is also punished. With the goddess Rind, Odin has the son Vale, who kills Hood but revenge cannot remedy the mischief done balder the good has perished and evil triumphs in her hall fenselofreg weeps for her son the end is approaching ragnarok when gods and men must perish and the present world will be destroyed another divinity which especially in sweden was worshipped more extensively than odin himself was frey the son of njord the god of the sea he was the god of weather and of harvests and was regarded as the giver of riches he became so enamoured with the beautiful Jotun maiden Gerd that he could neither eat nor sleep. One day he sat on Lidskjav in Osgard and saw her far to the north, and so beautiful was she that he made sky and ocean resplendent with light. He sent his servant Skirna, Shirnir, to woo her, but in order to win her he had to surrender his greatest treasure, his sword, and when Ragnarok comes he will be slain by Surt, because he has no weapon with which to defend himself. Heimdall, one of the oldest deifications of the heavens, is the sentinel of the gods, and lives at Bifröst, the celestial bridge over which gods and men ride to Valhall. Vidar, the silent one, is next to Thor, the strongest of the gods. Ege, Egir, is the ocean god, and Braga the god of poesy and eloquence. In Norse mythology there are twelve or thirteen principal gods, and an equal number of goddesses, Asenir. Frigg is Odin's wife and the queen of heaven, and dwells in fensala far to the west where the sun sets in the sea freya the beautiful goddess of love lives in Folkvang, where the great hall sesermne is found to her belongs one-half of the warriors who fall on the battlefield and she is accorded the right of first choice idun braga's wife called the good goddess keeps the apples from which the gods eat to preserve their youth thor's wife is the beautiful siv sif with hair of gold Shada, Njord's wife, was, like Gerd, of Jotun-race, and Snotra was the goddess of good sense and womanly graces. Before Ragnarok, evil passes all bounds. For three years there is perpetual strife. Brothers fight and kill each other. The ties of blood relationship are broken. Morals are corrupted, and one person has no compassion for the other. Then follow three years of constant winter, the winter, the Great Winter. Finally, Yggdrasil trembles. Fenrir breaks his fetters, and the midgard Sorm comes out of the ocean. Surt, the fire demon, comes. Loki is free again and leads the sons of Muspel and other forces of destruction to the final battle with the gods on the plain Vigrid. Fenrir kills Odin, but is in turn slain by the powerful Vidar. Thor and the midgard Sorm kill each other. Frey is slain by Surt. Ti fights against Hell's hound Garm, and both fall. Surt finally hurls fire over the earth. The sun grows dark, the earth sinks into the ocean, fire consumes all. The world of strife and bloodshed has disappeared. Out of the ocean, says the Vulva, rises a new green earth, where grain fields grow without being sown and where no evil exists. Here, on the fields of Eda, the gods who have survived Ragnarok reassemble. Baldr, who has returned from hell, is there. Also Vidar, Hud, Herner, and Thor's sons, Modi and Magna. A new race of men are also born. Pursuing her story, the vulva says, A hall I see on the heights of Gimle, brighter than the sun and covered with gold. Righteous men shall dwell there in endless happiness. This hall is a perfect contrast to Valhall, where the heroes even after death amuse themselves by fighting and slaying each other. In Gimle, the righteous live in peace and happiness. Gimle is the safe and secure home ornamented with precious stones. Sophus Bugge thinks that the fields of Ida are in reality the Christian Garden of Eden, and that Gimla is the heavenly Jerusalem described in Revelation 12, 10-21. 10. And he carried me away in the great spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. 11. Having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone clear as crystal. 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And says the Vulva, bringing her narrative to a closing climax. From above comes to the Great Judgment, the Powerful One, the Ruler of All. This is the ruler of the New World whose name not even the Vulva knows. In Norse mythology, the world is pictured as a scene of perpetual struggle between good and evil, a never-ending combat between the powers of life and the forces of destruction, and it is especially noteworthy that this struggle is a great tragedy in which the gods suffer complete overthrow. Baldr was killed, Loki and Fenrir broke their fetters, the struggle against evil has been unsuccessful on every point. Most of the leading gods themselves are destroyed by the forces of evil in the great final battle at Ragnarok. But evil, too, passes away with the world of strife in which it has existed. This thought of the overthrow and destruction of the greatest gods seems to be a new feature which could not very well have been developed until the faith in the old divinities was beginning to waver, and people began to feel that there was a heaven higher than Valhall and Vingolv, that true happiness was not to be found in strife, but in peace and righteousness, and that there was a god whom they did not yet know, who was more powerful than the Aesir, and who in the new world would establish a reign of justice, peace, and happiness. The Hindluljoth says, Then comes another god, still mightier, but his name I dare not mention. Few can now see farther than to Odin's meeting with the wolf. This worship might be carried on privately in the home, where the head of the family would sacrifice to the gods and bring offering to their images but it was usually conducted in temples, Hov, Old Norse hof, or in simpler sanctuaries, Horg, Old Norse Horger, of which no description is given in the old writings. They seem to have been simple structures, stone altars or the like, erected in the open and dedicated especially to the worship of goddesses. In the Hindluljoth, Freya says, Horg he built me, made of stone. Now the stones have turned to glass. With fresh blood of oxen he sprinkled them. Otter always believed in goddesses r kaiser and p a munch are of the opinion that many of the stone circles found in norway are remnants of this kind of sanctuaries these circles which are formed by placing great stones in an upright position are often very large and may have had an altar in the centre the temple consisted of two parts the large assembly hall or nave and the shrine a smaller room in the rear end of the building corresponding to the choir of the christian churches the images of the gods were placed in a half circle in the shrine at the center stood the altar, Stoller, upon which lay a large gold ring, Baugr, upon which all solemn oaths were sworn. The bowl containing the blood of the sacrificed animals, Hlautbolli, was placed on the altar by the priest, Gauthi, who, with a stick, Hlautain, sprinkled it on the images of the gods, and on the persons present. The meat of the animals was boiled and served to the assembled people in the large hall of the temple. Where toasts were drunk to the gods for victory and good harvests, the sanctuary and the grounds belonging to it was called Ve, a holy or sacred place, and anyone who violated its sanctity was called Vargi Vium, wolf in the sanctuary, and was outlawed. Three religious festivals were held each year: one at the beginning of winter, October 14th, the Vinternotsblot, or Houseblot, to bid winter welcome; another at midwinter, January 14th, Midwinter's Blot for peace and good harvest, and a third, Sommerblat, held on the first day of summer, April 14th, for victory on military expeditions. The temples seem to have been quite numerous, but especially well known were the ones at Sigtuna and Uppsala in Sweden, at Lyra, Hledra in Denmark, and at Skiringsal in Norway. There was in the north no distinct class of priests. The priestly functions were exercised by the herser and the Jarls, and even by the king himself. Women too might serve as priestesses, gydja. In Iceland, the gode, Old Norse gydi, held about the same position as the herse in Norway. He was a chieftain, and the temple in which he served as priest was built on his estates. End of chapter 20.